Okay, we will go ahead and get started. Let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll jump in. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Um, please illuminate it for us tonight. Open our hearts and eyes to see it and um, cause us to both hear and obey as we listen. I, I pray for your Spirit's aid in doing that tonight. Amen. <laughs> Okay, everybody, stop, stop. We got to do that prayer over again. It didn't count. Okay, no. All right. Well, now that we've now that we've heard series take on our text tonight, I'm going to give you mine. We're in Mark or Mark 12 tonight. It is a short passage tonight, um, but don't think that means you get a short lesson. Uh, no, I, I will. We'll kind of see. We'll we'll see what we're kind of feeling here in a little bit. But um, just. Uh, what, 10 verses, I think? Uh, 10 verses, um, finishing out the gospel, or finish out the 12th chapter of Mark. Here's kind of an update um, for you, because we skipped a week with our Q&A night last week, just to kind of get you caught up a little bit. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. We are most likely on Tuesday, okay? He gets crucified on what day? Friday. Friday, so we're just a few days away from the crucifixion. It may be Wednesday. Most likely this is Tuesday. And during um, the last, almost all of chapter 12, what you see in chapter 11 is a triumphal entry. In chapter 12, you see a lot of Jesus in the temple courts, in this area, and um, having a number of debates and conflicts with the religious leaders, with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees and the scribes, even with the Herodians. At some point, so um, by and large, what it has been so far is them kind of on the uh, the offensive and him on the defensive. So they've been coming up to him, asking questions, trying to kind of catch him off guard, trying to undermine his authority. It has not gone well for them. Um, and now, actually, what we'll see in this in this text is a switch where Jesus kind of goes on the offensive um, briefly before before we move into next week's, which is one of the most confusing and highly debated passages in all the Bible. So, look forward to that one. Um, but here's here's what we'll here's what we're looking at today. Um, like I said, Mark twelve verse thirty five. Rachel, do you want to be our reader? I will be your. Okay. Um, so. Give me verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. All right. So, what Jesus does first is he asks a question, and what, his, what this question is designed to do is he is coming after their understanding of what the Messiah was, or who the Messiah was. Um, and, and it's kind of worth saying he's not contradicting their statement, because he says, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? He's not going to contradict that. Um, the New Testament confirms over and over again that the Messiah, Jesus, is the son of David in the lineage of David. What he's about to do, though, is expand that. So he's not contradicting them, but he's saying that their view is too small of what the Messiah is. It's worth pausing here to note what he says about the Scriptures. He says in verse uh, 35, actually, how can the, or verse 36, David himself, what? In the Holy Spirit declared, by the Holy Spirit declared. Um, that's actually a really small verse with some really big implications. I don't know um, about you guys if you ever struggle with some of the things you come across, particularly in the Old Testament, some of the stories in there. Um, it is recently, I don't know if it's what it is, if it's reading into the children's Bible, I think that's kind of what does it. But as I'm doing like, the, uh, the bedtime stories with my kids at night, there are times when, if, I, if I'm honest, I'll confess to you, I'm reading them going, and in the back of my mind, I'm saying to myself, really? Like, as I'm 
telling my kids about this guy Noah who took all the animals and they were all paired up and he shoved them all on a boat and survived a big flood and that thing. I'm telling in this story, in the back of my mind, there's this little thing in me going, seriously? Like, do I, do I really believe this? Uh, or this guy who, who was thrown into the sea and then swallowed by a giant fish and in there for three days until the fish puked him up. Um, like, is that, do I really believe this? And, and I struggle sometimes. I don't know if you ever struggle with the Bible and particularly the Old Testament in there. Some of the facts uh, or some of the, yeah, the stories that are conveyed in there. Um, what has brought me an insane amount of peace and comfort um, in the last couple of years in this area is this verse and verses like it. Um, because I sometimes can read and go, man, that seems very man-made, like myth type stuff. But Jesus himself says that's the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus himself believes in, confesses the inspiration of the Old Testament, that that is breathed out by God. And because Jesus believes it, I trust it. Here's why I trust it. Because Jesus says it's true, and I believe that that's reliable because Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that because Jesus says he's the Son of God, and I believe that because all of Jesus' claims are validated by the resurrection. And actually, we don't have time to get into it, but I believe the resurrection to be one of the most provable events in human history. And, and because of that, it is because of my faith in the resurrection that I believe that Jonah was in the whale. Um, it's because of 1 Corinthians 15 that I trust uh, Genesis 9 and 10, the great flood, um, those kinds of things. And so passages like this are valuable where Jesus claims in, in multiple places that the Bible is, that the Old Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it is true and valid. Um, so he quotes here from Psalm 110, um, which refers to this David-like figure. Here's what it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now that's how it reads in Greek and that's kind of confusing to us, but that's not how it read in the Hebrew when it's written out. It's literally, if you go look in the Old Testament, it says this, the Lord said to my Lord. All right, or it may be this, I don't know. Um, but in the Old Testament, what this is actually, when you see this, when you see Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, what is that? That is the name of God, Yahweh. Um, and so when he says these two, we want to make sure we're not getting them mixed up. The Lord... Yahweh said to my Lord, and this word is Adonai, which, which often is used to describe God, which often is used to describe the Lord, um, but can actually kind of mean like serve, like uh, um, sir, in a sense, or master, or king. Um, so what this is, is David who is speaking in Psalm 110, and he says, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, my master, my uh, sir or, or boss or whatever you want to say, um, sit, at my, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool on your feet. And so this is, this is what's going on here and what is being quoted here. This text, by the way, Psalm 110, verse 1, the number one most quoted verse in the New Testament. This is the favorite. And they go to it over and over again. And actually other passages in this chapter, one we'll read that is going to be pretty recognizable to you guys who were here last year um, in, in just a bit. But, but this verse gets mentioned a lot um, by the New Testament as a reference to Jesus, reference to the Messiah. And what this text does, as I says, is it expands their definition of what the Messiah could be. And it does it in three ways, at least three ways. The first is this, um, it was taken for granted that the Son was never greater than the Father. And that Father would never be greater than His Father, who would never be greater than His Father. The way it worked, and it, the way it was understood is that um, the Son is always lesser than the, His Father before Him. Um, so you would never have a father call His Son, Sir. You'd never call a have a grandfather say to his grandson, Mr. Moss or master, or anything like that. That's just, we actually even get that a little bit. Like it would be weird for your father to walk around calling you sir all the time. So we understand that to some degree, but they, have, but they recognize like the son comes from that father. So how could you say that 
He is greater than him. And, and, and of course, if you follow that all the way down, and if it's true that the Messiah is a son of the 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 son of David, a great descendant of David, Jesus says, then why is it that David is calling him Lord? Why is it that David, if, if the younger one can never be greater, then why is David saying he's greater? And he's giving them kind of this expanded version as if to say... Um, like, what if the Messiah is more than just a physical descendant of David? And, and what if, I think he may be actually getting at, what if the Messiah actually does come before David? Like, what if whoever that person was was in, was in existence before him? The second way, and he, he expands their view, is this. If the Messiah is greater than David, then you ought to expect his kingdom to be greater than just David's. So this goes at what we've talked about a little bit. The common understanding, and this was what was happening in the triumphal entry. They said these things. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Because their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do, what David did, is he um, defeated all of the Gentile oppressors who were fighting against Israel. He defeated them all and set Israel up as a superpower in that region, in that part of the world. And so that was the understanding that the next Messiah would do. Defeat the Gentile oppressors, Rome, and set Israel up as a superpower. So the question is, though, but if, if the Messiah is not simply a son of David, then what if his kingdom is not simply going to be a restored physical version of David's kingdom? What if thinking of that way is too small? That's what seems to be happening. The third is this, and this is kind of important to catch. We've, we've said this uh, a few times. Whenever the New Testament quotes an Old Testament verse, you need to go back and read the context of that Old Testament verse. Because that Old Testament verse, it's not spoken in a vacuum. It's spoken as a greater argument or spoken as a greater text. And so you go back and look at Psalm 110 and some of the things that it says there. It says at least one thing that could never be spoken about a king before. It was not allowed to be spoken about a king. Let me go to Psalm 110 real quick. Um, Psalm 110 verse... Let me get almost there. Verse 4 says this. Um, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord a couple things. One is sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. But he also says to this Lord, this coming David-like figure, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That was not allowed, actually, in the kingship of Israel. Kings always came from the line of Judah. The priests always came from the line of Levi. And it was specifically set up so that you could not have an overlap in between those two. You don't want all that power in one spot exactly like this. And so the kings weren't allowed to be. In fact, it can be argued, actually, that one of the major reasons that the first king of Israel, who is who? Saul. Saul. The reason he loses his kingship is because he tries to take on some of the priestly responsibilities. Do you remember? He's lining up for battle, and the tradition is, and the way it works, is you seek the blessing of the Lord and offer a sacrifice there, and he's supposed to wait there for Samuel to come do it, but, but Saul doesn't want to wait, and he doesn't get time to wait, and it feels like this has got to get done, and so Saul goes ahead and does it himself, and Samuel shows up and says, your kingship has been taken away from you. Kings don't do this. And yet here in this psalm, and this must have been an odd one for the people to think through as, as they read this come from, coming from the pen of David, the Lord has said to this king, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Where did we read that passage before? Where have you heard that one quoted? Hebrews, Hebrews right? Hebrews. The first passage is Hebrews 1, and then that, or you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that's Hebrews 7, because Hebrews makes clear that there is actually one who was able to do both, and that is Jesus himself. Um, but here's what's kind of crazy, and, and I have really, I think Mark has become my favorite gospel in the last couple years. I, I just kind of realized, I think it's my favorite, and, and, and here's one of the things I love. He takes, and, and we'll get into this later, but I think Mark takes the same approach in his teaching that Jesus does. And, and Jesus does this thing, we, we've touched on it before, they talk a lot about how a good teacher is able, you've, you, you've probably heard this phrase, is able to take the cookies and put them on the bottom shelf. 
right? Like meaning that a good teacher is able to take big, heavy truths and put them at a place where everyone can reach them and everyone can understand them. Jesus we see consistently like leaving the cookies on the top shelf. Um, Like Jesus consistently, and here's what I would say, Jesus never places himself and his identity out of reach of people. But he always leaves that identity in a place where you cannot reach it from your own comfortable position. Like he always, re- he always leaves it at a place where, like, you can, anyone can reach it. Anyone can have it if they are willing to reach out for it. If they're willing to stretch. If they're willing to stand on their tippy toes to try and get to that cookie jar, then yes, they can. But Jesus isn't interested in just trying to kind of hand it out to anybody who's standing around hoping that they'll take a bite. Like, no, his, he, he always kind of just leaves it there. And if you, want, if you want to seek this out, seek it out. And so Jesus just leaves the question. That's all he does. So if David is calling this guy Lord, then how can he be David's son? And he just kind of does this little shrug thing. And then, and then that's kind of it. Hmm, interesting. And leaves it at that. And the crowd is, is kind of just enthralled by this because, because it's, it's fascinating. And it is. It's kind of putting the, the scribes in a weird spot, a conundrum, trying to wrestle with these issues. But um, let's read verses 38 through 40. Okay, now he's not just throwing questions towards the scribes, but he's actively accusing them. Beware of the scribes. Um, write this down if you're taking notes, or you could even write it down next to this little text in your Bible in the margins. Matthew 23. If you want to see Jesus is actually, what, what Mark is giving you is the Cliff Notes version of this speech. Um, but if you want to hear Jesus really go off, if you want to hear the extended version, that's Matthew 23. Some of the harshest words that um, ever come from Jesus' mouth are uttered in this place right here um, as he's debating with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says some really, some really harsh things to them there. His primary attack against them, specifically in Mark's kind of narrative, his primary attack against them is with their seeking honor for themselves. They wear the long robe so they'll be noticed. And they like to go and make sure they're greeted. They always seek the chief seats, um, or the first seats is what it may kind of more literally say in the Greek. The first seats in the synagogue and the positions of honor. Um, So his main thing that he guns at them for is their constantly seeking the honor of other people around them to be known and to be great. And this is, according to Jesus and according to the Bible, this is one of the most detrimental sins when it comes to your ability to know and honor God. The desire to be honored by other people will always make it harder for you to honor God. In fact, it actually makes it harder for you to even like believe in Him and trust Him. This is what Jesus says in John 5.44. He's in this debate with the Jews, specifically probably the Jewish leaders. And he says this really, really profound verse. How can you believe when you receive the glory that comes from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? I'm going to read that one more time. How can you believe when you receive the glory that comes from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Jesus is saying here, seems to be implying, that the more you want to be known, And the more you want to be honored, the less faith you're going to be able to have. Like the less you'll be able to trust Him. And I believe that becomes, because at the heart of faith is a humility and a recognition of my need to trust in this person. And so the more that you are seeking to lift yourself up, the more difficult that is going to be for you to do. Um, Not only does it, so here's what you actually notice. When Jesus is dogging the scribes, what you find is um, He's dogging them for seeking honor because that keeps them from loving God, which is the greatest command. It also keeps them from loving people, which is the second greatest commandment. Um, it says that they are constantly seeking, like I said, it, that, that where it says chief seats in the, uh, in, in the synagogues, that word is literally like, well, I'll just say it. It's proto-cathedria, okay? Proto means first. They're constantly seeking to be first, which is 
directly against what Jesus says in Matthew 10.44, I tell you that those who want to be first shall be servants of all, shall be slaves of all. Um, and so it speaks against the exactly how, how Jesus proclaims greatness to be. And he says, not only this, but the scribes devour widows' houses. We don't know. Nobody knows actually exactly what that means. There are a few possibilities. It could be that um, the scribes generally, and this is kind of a weird thing for us. We don't we don't get it. But scribes are like a mixture of um, preacher slash lawyer. Okay, um, or maybe yeah, Sunday school teacher, college professor, lawyer. Okay, and and they kind of did it all. It wasn't weird for for roles to be all mixed up together back then. That's how it worked. And so scribes would have also been in charge of kind of legal things. And so there's a couple things they might have been doing. They would have probably, when widows, when, when a man died and a widow was kind of left in charge of an estate, that was often probably handed over to someone like a scribe or a lawyer to help take care of that because she doesn't know a whole lot about it. Women weren't allowed to be educated and, and didn't have a lot of financial responsibility. And so it would have been handed over to a scribe or lawyer. So he could have been talking about the, that these scribes were cheating widows in their roles as guardians of the husband's estates. They could have been sponging off the hospitality of widows. Um, we see actually quite a bit today. Um, well, I say quite a bit. It's not uncommon for religious teachers, particularly those on television, um, to make a lot of money off of poor, helpless people who think that they're going to be blessed by giving money to those people. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that that could be actually a little bit of what's going on here. It could be that they were accepting payment from the widows for legal aid and advice, which was technically um, like they spoken against back then. Kind of the rabbis and the rules said you don't do that with widows, but it could be that they were charging the widows on that thing. What we do know is that they were taking advantage of widows were consistently kind of used to represent the most vulnerable in that society particularly any widow without a male heir. Um, when your husband dies and you have no son, you've got no hope. Um, you're at the most vulnerable place, and these widows were being taken advantage of by the scribes. Um, from this, Jesus actually, or Mark moves into a story about a widow. So let's read verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All right. Um, this is where we'll be, Scott will be spending most of his time, so... I won't spend too much time here, but let me just kind of paint the picture for you. More than likely, when it says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury or the place of collection, more than likely what Mark is referring to is 13 different boxes that sat around the edges of the women's court. So this is the above view of the temple courts, right? The temple, this is the priest courts where they can go. This is the men's court where only the men can go or the court of Israel, um, and then this was the women's court. And um, there were some storage places here, but around this sat these 13 different boxes, each labeled with different purposes for what you could give in. But the boxes, the chests, were actually kind of made in this trumpet shape so that you could kind of throw the coins into this trumpet. It would have made this really loud noise when someone was putting a large amount of money in there, a great way to kind of draw attention to your giving and to yourself. And Jesus sits down. It's kind of interesting, actually, to even think about it, how discreet we try to be with our offerings at church and putting it in envelopes and, you know, putting it in the plates and not making a big deal. And how weird would it be if, like, Jesus just, like, sat down and just watched you as you're going with your money, right? Just to kind of sit there and see what everybody's giving, you know what I mean? Um, but, but Jesus, the, the interesting thing is that Jesus would evaluate all of those offerings differently than we would today. Um, based on this, um, he says, as he looks at these, and this widow comes up and she drops in these two small coins. Um, letmas, is that what they were called in the Greek? I can't remember the specific name. They were the smallest coins in circulation in Jesus' time. Um, these two little bitty coins, and together, the two of them together, created one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was a day's wage. So those two coins were one sixty-fourth 
of a day's wage back then um, is what that was. It's, it's um, 50 cents a dollar, something along those lines is, is what this woman comes and gives and she drops in. And yet Jesus says, as all these people are coming in and dumping in large sums of money and you can hear the noise ringing all the way around there, Jesus calls his disciples over and says, watch this. And as that woman gives, he says, I want you to know something. Everyone around here is giving tons, but they are all giving out of their abundance. She is giving out of her poverty. And so that means that she is giving more than anybody else here. Which is a crazy statement. Um, Because like what she would have been giving to, there's only one place you could give that small amount, and that would have been in the free will offering. Um, so the, the one marked free will offering, and that was the one that went to like temple repairs. Um, and think for just a like what kind of temple repairs could even be done with what she gave in there? That's like, that's like scotch tape over a crack is basically what you can buy there. Okay? Um, and Jesus says that, that's more than anything else, specifically because of this, because she gave from her poverty. And this is fascinating, and this is a little bit sticky, because Jesus does come back to this idea of poverty and the beauty of it multiple times. When he says in his Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain recorded in Luke, blessed are the poor. When the rich young ruler comes to him and says, what do I got to do to find eternal life, to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, oh, easy, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Um, and then this woman comes up in the midst of everyone giving away all this stuff. And Jesus says, she's the one that I want you to be like. She's the one who gives more than everybody else because she gives from her poverty, not from her abundance. So the question is, like, how in the world do we live that out? Is it even possible in a culture of mass abundance like we live in, and let's not kid ourselves, this is a culture of abundance, is it even possible to give from our poverty in a culture of abundance? That's what Scott's going to be chatting about in just a minute here. So take a, take a break, go ahead, stand up if you need to, stretch your legs, and then in a minute we'll get back into that. Okay, so we're gonna gonna continue on here. Um, this this idea of this woman giving out of her poverty, in, in in direct contrast to the rich giving out of their abundance, is is an interesting contrast. But what fascinates me about it is that that Jesus seems to be so drawn to this, and that Jesus is praising essentially this woman for her gift, for giving everything. And earlier in Mark 10, you know, he, he challenges this rich young ruler to go and sell all your possession and give to the poor. And so what is it about the poor that Jesus is so fascinated with? Like, th- this isn't just somebody that we admire. This is, this is our Lord. This is, this is the one in which we've, we've placed our faith and trust in. This is the one in which we... We say we follow, and and he is and he is um, fascinated with and and in praising essentially and in love with those that seem to be poor. Why is that? And what hope do we have? Um, like like Drew said, we we live in such a culture of abundance that it it is it, it takes discipline. It, we have to be really extra intentional. To, to go, okay, I know Walmart's right down the street that way, and there's one that way, and there's a gas station on every corner, and I can get anything I need any, at any, within a five-minute drive, but I, I, I need God more. Like, we have to make, we have to do some mental gymnastics to try to get to that point where we go, yes, I need God more than I need all the things that are around me. And some of us actually struggle with that more than others, and others have a, maybe an easier time, but we have to be extra intentional to, to think about it in that way. And, you know, first century was written to such a different culture than us, and so what does this mean for us? Um, 
a couple years ago, I got to take a class from a from a Franciscan monk, who who is actually a, he has a they have a monastery in Arkansas called the Brothers and Sisters of Little Charity, and uh, his name's John Michael Talbot. Anybody heard of John Michael Talbot? Anybody? If, okay. Um, when did I talk about him? All right. Did I ever show you a picture of him? I'm going to show you a picture of him. Uh, he looks like Gandalf. That's that. It's exactly what he looks like. I kid you not. I did not take that picture, by the way. Um, I did take. I do have a picture. I did take a picture of him, but I couldn't find it on my phone. It was on an old phone. I think I lost it. But anyway, uh, he was a fascinating guy. Like literally wears that brown thing everywhere he goes. That's that's his wardrobe. That's all he has. That's all he chose. That's all he wears. He's take he's taken a vow of, of poverty, um, and he he doesn't really have to actually. He's a pretty um, successful musician. He's written over I think he's had over I don't know dozens of albums he's put out. He's written dozens of books. He's a prolific songwriter and book writer. Um, he was kind of a rock, rock and roll guy before he really committed to Christ, and and, and eventually kind of gives gives his life to Christ and and serves and desires to serve Him and takes this vow of poverty and starts this hermitage in in Arkansas where they have a, a community of people that live there and they kind of live off the land and and take care of each other and live in community. He's a really fascinating guy. He taught from an, a MacBook throwing it, and he has an iPhone, and he looks like a monk. Um, he, he's quite an interesting guy. But he taught a class I took for my master's program on, on Franciscan and Benedictine spirituality. And, and so St. Francis, you've probably heard of him. He was in the late, eight, late 1100s, early 1200s. Um, St. Benedict, he was in the 400s. St. Benedict was kind of made... Uh, was kind of known for and, and made the monastic life. Um, he, he kind of introduced it. He kind of started it. It was around the Desert Fathers and Mothers. We've talked about, I talked about a couple weeks ago, a guy named St. Um, Anthony or, or Abba Anthony. Uh, I'll show you a picture of him in a second too. <laughs> totally different guy. Um, but he actually looks a lot like Gandalf too. Uh, but... Um, he, uh, he, he was one of the first desert fathers that, that left uh, the culture, left society, and went out to live in the woods and live off the land. Well, anyway, by, within a couple hundred years, this was a growing movement, and so Benedict um, took a group of these guys that were just living off in the land and, 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 and organized some sort of um, a group so that they would come together uh, on Sabbath every, every week. So they'd live off in their caves, wherever they lived, and then they'd come together once a week, and then that eventually kind of grew into this um, a, a monastery, uh, this monastic way of life. And they, they lived by some very, they call it the rule of Benedict, but, or Benedictine rule, but they lived by this kind of code of ethics. And uh, it was fascinating to learn about their way of life. Because here's the point, here's, here's, what, here's what I loved about some of these classes I took was it helped me understand I'm not the only one that's, that's read this Bible and thought, how do I live for Jesus? You know, Jesus calls us to die to self. I want to do that. And I think so many times we, in America, especially in the Bible Belt, especially evangelicals, which is most of us, all of us, we think we're the only ones that's ever tried to figure out how to live for Jesus. And I'm the only one that is trying to figure out how do I live sacrificially for God? How do I die to Christ, and how do I let Him live through me? Like, we think we're the only ones that have tried to figure this out. And for hundreds of years, not thousands of years, there, there's been men and women throughout church history that have, that have sought out, that reading the same book, inspired by the same God, led by the same Spirit, trying to worship the same Jesus and live for Him. And so it's been, it was awesome for me to learn about these men and these women um, and hear like what they felt called to. And so, um, anyway, he, he introduced me to this. He also wrote several books we had to read for this class. And um, in one of the books, he had a, a chapter on poverty. 
and I never really heard, heard anybody put it this way, but he actually gave um, biblical models for poverty. He gave three, there's three biblical models. So I'm going to give those to you. Okay, these three biblical models for poverty. First one is this, renouncing all possessions. Um, here's, here's a verse. This is uh, in, Matthew, in Matthew 10 when, when Jesus sends out the twelve. And uh, he, he, uh, he tells them, you received without paying. In other words, you, you received something from me without paying for it. So now give without being paid, without pay. Um, he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or, no, or, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the labor deserves his food. He's sending them out and he's saying, take nothing with you and trust God, and just and, and trust Him to provide. As you serve and as you work, He will provide. And so, this isn't necessarily uh, Jesus giving a mandate for a way of life, but a lot of people throughout church history read this and said, this is what I'm called to do. To travel, and, and to trust God, and to walk enter into cities with nothing but the gospel, and trust God to provide. And uh, to me, that's just amazing. Uh, here's another verse in Mark 10. This is, this is the one we talked about a couple of weeks where he says to the rich young ruler, he looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is the one that Anthony, there he is, looks like Gandalf too, um, Actually, I don't know if this is Anthony. We don't really have a picture. This is, he, you know, he, was, he was alive in the late 200s, early 300s, and so someone drew pictures, and I liked it because his hands were raised just like the other Gandalf. So, um, but so this is that, that particular story, if you remember a couple weeks ago, this, that's the story that Anthony uh, heard and said, what am I doing? And so he went and sold everything and gave his sister to a, to a home and went off to, to, into, the, into the woods, lived for 40 years total. Um, so, so anyway, th- this, is, this is one, one model, renouncing all possessions and, and, and living off, off of God's, God's love and trust. The second one is this, renouncing possessions while maintaining communal ownership. Um, in Acts 2 and 4 gives us a model of this. We see the early church doing this. Um, we see them having possessions and bringing it before the group said all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need that's the early church that's the the birth of the church started with this level of living and generosity and this this model of um, everything i have is is ours uh, look in, in acts 4 it says um, says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as, as any had need. And so you have these examples of the church um, recognizing, okay, you know, you've given God, and so I'm going to give and, and bless and serve one another. And so this is, this is, a, this is a model and, and this is exactly what Benedict and, and then Francis, here's a picture of Francis, of course with his hands raised. Um, so you have St. Francis, for example. I don't know if I've talked about him recently, but he, he was born in the late 1100s and uh, he li- died, I think, in the mid-40s. He wasn't alive too long. For the first 24 years of his life, he was a pretty rich man. His parents were rich. His parents were um, like owned a uh, sold cloth and uh, were pretty wealthy at it. In fact, it was around a time when um, you know they used to just barter for things, and and then they established a monetary system, and and so there became a really clear distinction between the rich and the poor. And he lived in that time when there was clearly rich living in abundance and extravagance, and there was clearly poor who were living without. And through, he, you know, he was involved in the war, got injured, had the spiritual experience, and, and decided um, to sell, actually, he, 
got kind of crazy and started giving all his parents stuff away. And they didn't like that at all. They tried, they like took him before the priest of you know the town and tried to reprimand him. And and he he in that moment, um, according to tradition, took off all his clothes, handed it to his parents, and walked out of the town naked, and walked into the in, into the sunset kind of a thing. Um, so this is this is Saint Francis, and and so. He goes off and he decides to live a, uh, this is a word that, that Gandalf um, the Great taught me, um, mendicant life, a mendicant life. And, and, it's this, and it's this open-handed way of life. And Francis is really kind of known for this. Like he was known for this, this way of everything, everything that's given to me, I hold with an open hand and wait, for, wait to give it to the next person who needs it more. And it's said that he only he only owned a pair of sandals, a pair of trousers, and a what they call a habit or like a robe. That's all he owned. And anytime someone tried to give him a coat during the winter, he would wear it until he met somebody who needed it more, and he'd give it away. And he was kind of known for like never keeping anything long enough, and people would get upset with him. Francis, you need to wear a coat. It's cold. Yeah, but I feel like I'm robbing this needy person when they they need it more than I do. And so he, he lived this way of life, traveling from town to town, he and his, and his buddies, um, just this, whatever I have, I give, and whatever I receive, I thank God for, and I pass it on. And, um, and, and, and he, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting was, Francis really, he really believed that power and wealth were, were the root of so many um, sins, and in fact, if you if you read and understand church history, when the church it gets wealthy and and falls in power, is when the church becomes corrupt, over and over and over and over, and so Francis decides to reject power and wealth at all cost, and and so you know there's this saying that if you want to live like no one else, you got to live like no one else, and and Francis really modeled that. And he's just like, no, I'm going to live completely opposite of this culture and, and reject power and wealth so that, so that I can simply have Christ and, and offer Christ and Christ alone, you know. So, renouncing possessions, he, he lived in this community, they shared everything, um, and, and he really modeled that well. And then the last biblical model for poverty is found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Actually, it's found kind of in other places too. But in, in chapter 8, um, the, at the beginning of chapter 8, it, it talks about the Macedonians who, who out, of their, um, out of their poverty, they, they became really, really generous and, and wanted to give to Paul to bless the other churches. And it says they begged him. So in other words, it sounds like Paul's like, no, 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 you guys... You guys are poor. You don't need to give. Keep, keep what God's given you for yourself. And it says that they begged him to let them give to Paul to, to bless the other churches. And Paul just uses this as an example of, of just godliness, you know, that, that out of their joy and in their poverty, they gave abundantly. And, and, uh, and so this third model... The right to private property, but, but sharing it freely with those in need. In this verse in, in chapter 9, it says, The point is this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, so you have these examples of this example of Paul saying, not, every, not everybody's called to, to, to give all their possessions away and just live off the land. Not everybody's called to, to just move into a, a commune and, and share everything you have. Um, but he gives examples of people who have property, but recognize that, that property is something to use to bless others and, and to use to give out of an abundance, to give cheerfully. To give this heart that says, "I want to, I want to, I want to bless those because God's blessed me," 
And so there's this group in Stillwater that has felt called to do that, and they are the, taint, the table saints of Stillwater. Um, so, in other words, if biblically speaking, if you don't fit into one of those first two camps, you fit into this third one. Like, there's one of three choices. And maybe someone in here will fit into one of the first two camps. I think it'd be kind of fun to live in the second camp. Sometimes. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do. Um, in fact, if you know Paul Weiss, he, he kind of dreams of someday building a, building a property big enough to have several families and just to kind of live and share what God's given us. And, and you know, I think it'd be awesome. I think, I think you would begin to really experience and see what the church um, is supposed to be about. But, but this is really what we're called to, is that everything you have has been given to you and is to be shared and is to be held with an open hand because God's given to you and, and how, how dare we hold on to it so tight that we don't want to give it, that we aren't open to God being able to bless others with it. So these three biblical models I, I thought were really helpful. So I want, to talk, I want to talk a little bit about what poverty is and then what poverty isn't. Um, poverty is a state of the heart. Um, you know, Jesus says in, 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 in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, the, the, you know, uh, an integrated faith says... God, you've given me everything I need. What could I possibly give you? In fact, this is what Romans 11 says. What, could, what gift could you give God that he would owe you things? That, that he would need to be repaid? Like, what could you give God that he would have to repay you? Nothing. I remember this several weeks ago, thinking about this when this, the big lottery was out, this before the three or four people that won. And it was like six or seven million, six or seven hundred million take home is what it was. And I, and I just remember thinking how miserable, honestly, how miserable it would be to have to figure out what to do with that money. Um, and that sounds crazy, but I, I really do think it would just be a full-time job trying to figure out, I mean, and try to manage all the people coming and asking and begging and all the sob stories and all the great things that people are doing and all the, all the ways that people want to spend your money. Um, I think it'd just be miserable. But um, but the other, the second thought I had was, well, I, you know, I guess a lot of good could be done. Like, think of all the great things that could be done. Think of all the ministries that could be funded. Think of all the... And then it hit me like, like God's not up in heaven going, oh, I hope one of my guys get it. Mm, I hope one of my people get it, you know? Like, what, what possibly would God want with $600 million? I mean, think about it. It'd be like handing him $600 million Monopoly dollars. I mean, it's the same thing. What's he going to do with it? Nothing. I mean, so what, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Every breath you take is a gift. Um, the, the fact that you're born where you're born, who you're born to, the, pe- the fact that you know who you know, um, all of that is not by your choice and choosing, and it's a gift. So everything, everything we have. So, so this, this poverty of heart is recognizing I'm bankrupt. No matter how much my bank account says I have in, no matter, no matter what kind of job I have, no matter what kind of property I have, no matter what my estimated value is, I'm bankrupt without God. Like there's no, I got nothing that I'm going to give to Him and to impress Him, to, to show Him that I deserve anything. And so a poverty of heart is, is just understanding reality as it is and saying, okay, God, like none of this stuff matters. Seeking after the, 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 the best job that makes the most money, to have the nicest things, to impress the people that we really don't even like anyway. I mean, none of that matters. So, so at, you know, understanding this, this poverty of heart, this place... Recognizing where you're operating from, where you where you're coming from, and what you have to offer, is huge, and it shows your understanding of God. As I was reading through Second Corinthians eight, um, this verse came out. And I have it underlined in my Bible, but literally I was I read it again for the first time. So 
If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I'll have it on the screen, but I want you to see it in your Bible too uh, because I think it's worth underlining. Paul sums up the Gospel pretty well in this verse. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for, for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That's just beautiful. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, might, so that you by His poverty, might become rich. So, so Paul, i.e. Jesus, defines poverty and, and, and rich. He, he defines what it means to be rich in a whole other way than, than we do. It has nothing to do with money and it has nothing to do with possessions. It has everything to do with um, re- reconcile to God, relationship with God, the grace and the forgiveness that He offers, the mercy that God gives. So that's what it means to be rich. This is, this is a note that I put in, in one of the books I was reading at that time um, based on a similar idea that He emptied Himself to become like us in order that we might empty ourselves to become like Him. He emptied Himself to become like us in order that we might empty ourselves to become like Him. Poverty of heart is, is this idea that, you know, just like Jesus said, die to yourself and follow Me. Empty yourself. Like empty, empty anything that you think you have to offer. Surrender it over to God. That's what it means to live uh, with a poverty, in, in poverty of heart. So that's what poverty is. Here's what poverty is not. Poverty is not just a state of the heart. Um, to say... You know, to, to, to let your bank account store up and to have all these possessions and then say, no, it's, it's really not about the possessions, it's about poverty of heart. Like, the reality is, uh, somebody who, who operates from this, this place of poverty, it's an internal reality that has external implications. It should have external implications. It, it shouldn't mean, I, uh, yeah. If I'm if I say I'm living out of this place of poverty and yet I'm hoarding and, and and yet I'm gaining and and more and more and more and I want more and more and more, there's something really disconnected. So there, at some level, it's not just a state of the heart. It actually does have implications to what we buy and how we buy. Um, you know. So, so. Jesus has, and, and the Bible has, some very strong words to say to the rich. Here's, here's one of them. It's easier for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We've talked about that, that verse. But the, the very strong words Jesus has to the rich. Because like we said a couple weeks ago, um, the, the more rich you are, the, less, the, the harder it is to recognize your need for Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Timothy. Uh, he says, but, but those who desire to be rich fall into, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. He says later in that, in that chapter, As for the rich in this present age, um, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Um, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good fountain for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. They're strong words to the rich. Um, and, and so... It's not just a state of the heart. It, it does impact how you spend your money and, and what you get excited about and 
and the value that you place on certain things and the status that you hope it brings, um, it really does impact those things. Um, poverty of heart leads to simplicity. Simplicity leads to freedom of possession. So, one of the things that hit me the most about studying these guys, Benedict and, and, and Francis and, and Anthony and all these others, was just, you know, they, they talk about the anxiousness that we have. The more stuff you have, the more anxious you are. The more, you're wor- the more stuff you have, the more worried about that stuff. When, when you, if, if and when, you make an investment into something, so that you're, you're watching that investment and you find yourself kind of wondering how it's doing and you have a temptation to want to look at it on a regular basis because where your treasure is, there what? Yeah, there your heart is. It's, it's interesting how my heart will follow the things that I give towards. If I give towards something, I kind of follow up with it. I kind of want to know how it's going. I kind of want to know how... My money's being spent. I kind of want to know if it's gaining interest or if it's losing. You know, it's, it's amazing how our heart follows the things that we give towards. And, and so this idea of simplicity is a radical idea. Um, it's, a, it's a discipline, I believe, that, that we're called to. Any, that, that we're called to because of the culture that we live in, because of this abundant culture that we live in. And, and if you could sum up, I think, if Jesus or any, any verse could really sum up the goal of simplicity or, or um, what's really at stake or what, what the purpose is or, or how, to, how to live with, 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 and, and to grow in simplicity, this, this one verse, Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This comes... You know, um, after the section, and, and um, Ryan just preached on it this weekend, but it comes after this Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that Ryan was saying in our staff meeting before Sunday, because we always talk about the sermon on Monday before, and he was saying how in, so, you know, Jesus, or he gives us Lord's Prayer, um, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, your will be done, right? And so I guess in England, um, the Church of England is trying to make this comeback and trying to like, get people to start coming back to church because it, most of the churches have turned into bars or museums. And so, so they've made this video and they were showing it at the beginning of movies, like in, at movie theaters. And in some places they started banning this video because it was literally just people, they recorded a bunch of people just reciting the Lord's Prayer, prayer and then they were splicing them in and it was, you know, and it was just like all, all these variety of people saying the Lord's Prayer, come back to church, you know. And, and, it, and it was a prayer that everyone recognized and everyone knew but they start banning and so they um andrew wilson and some others were i guess talking about this and debating like why would they ban this what's the big deal and 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 wilson's comment was actually it's a really offensive prayer if you think about it because what what jesus is asking for is for god's kingdom and, and will to come down and to invade our kingdom and our will so 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 to desire what God's kingdom and God's will be done here is to ask for all of your desires and all of my desires and all of our will to be put to death. Like it's, it's, it's no longer about us anymore. It's about what God wants. And that, for some, is a pretty offensive prayer. And so following that, it comes to this, this section in, in, at the end of Matthew 6, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And in this prayer, you know, Ryan pointed out that it's about wanting God's name, being obsessed with God's name, to be glorified above all things. And, and so here he follows up, he kind of continues that idea, seek first the kingdom of God, seeking first His righteousness, and then let all these other things come. Um, so, a little bit of my story. I, so, this is, this is really a challenge for me. I would say, um, obviously, there's been growth. Obviously, there's been maturity in, in, in my understanding of 
possessions and how this works. But so coming out of college in the ministry, you know, my wife and I pretty much lived paycheck to paycheck. Like we didn't have abundance. I mean, now we lived in abundant culture. We probably we lived like kings compared to you know th- three fourths of the rest of the world, just like all of you. Um, but but we didn't have we didn't ever have to like figure out. So what do we do with this surplus money every month? What do we do with this? Should we invest it? Should we save it all? Should we you know spend it on ourselves? What should we do with it? Like we didn't we didn't ever have those talks because we didn't have a surplus. We just like money would come in and then money would go out. And God always provided what we needed and we we were able to pay our bills and actually we were able to to be smart and we started you know investing a little bit here and there but it was it was literally little and and so you know little by little as as I believe we were faithful what God gave us he he began to give us more and and specifically in the form of California real estate so we happened to buy at a time when the market was going crazy and we seem like real estate geniuses because we just bought a house um, and and made a lot of money, to be honest. And now, it, it was fake money because it, you know, it crashed and then it, we lost a lot too. But but the the interesting thing that's happened is is because you know we've now been married 17 years or something like that. Um, I I could figure it out. It's June of '98. Um, so, so we, you know, we've gotten to this point where we don't live paycheck to paycheck. We actually do have a little bit. So we have to try to, now we're having conversations like, Hey, so, you know, we're always thinking, okay, the kids need braces and those are expensive. Like, you know, expensive braces are ridiculous. And then Kylie's now, she's 14. So she's going to be driving a couple of years. So should we start saving for a car? So like we're we're asking. So do we start saving for all the expenses that we're going to have to pay for the rest of our life? Should we just start saving for all those things, or should we just trust God for those things and give the extra away, or should we invest for so our kids don't have to like take care of us when 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 you know when we're old and can't work? Like so, trying to figure out what to do with this has actually been a challenge for me. And uh, it's been something that's on my heart quite a bit, actually, in the last in the last year. And and Ryan and I have had lots of conversations about what do we do? How do we do this? Like, I'd rather us just live paycheck to paycheck. It was sure a lot easier, um, honestly. And now I got to figure out what to do with this money. And and so I can tell you, God is changing my heart more and more, and and my wife, and um, to where. Stuff just doesn't do it for us anymore, and and unfortunately we have a lot of it. I wish we could burn half of it. Um, I tried to throw it away when we moved here, but she wouldn't let me. It's, it's her fault. But but it really is like okay, if I if I could go back and and give any advice to you as you kind of are entering into your adult life and as you're th- you know you you leave here and you get a job and you start making money and you start thinking about buying property and you start thinking about buying things and, and before you know it, you know, if the Lord wills and you get married and you have a family, the stuff just comes at, you know, lightning speed. You, you have diaper genies, you have, you have all kinds of things. Yeah, I don't even, don't even get me started. Um, you start owning things that make just, uh, just, sad um, because you think you need it Um, so you know if if I could if I could challenge you it would be would be to to practice simplicity and so I want to give you these 10 things and we're not going to go through them all but this is from a book by a guy named Richard Foster and uh, he wrote a book called uh, Celebration of Discipline and in this chapter on simplicity he gives these ten, 10 ways to practice it. And so I got a picture of, of Richard Foster, but he's not. This is as close as I get to his hands being raised. Um, so I actually, got to, I actually got to have a class with him, too. He's pretty cool. Um, uh, but so, so here's another guy who um, has been seeking. He, he lives you know, today, 
he's old, older, but um, but he's he's a, he's a guy who's been fairly successful in in writing and and traveling and speaking and teaching and and um, the last time I saw him, he was he was really trying to get out of the spotlight as much as possible, and people keep dragging him back in to come and speak, and he was turning he's just turning down things more and more and more because he just feels like. Yeah, it's. It, I don't need to be talking anymore. I'm good. Let God let let others do this. And so I I really appreciate his heart. But his th- this these ten things on simplicity I thought were helpful. Um, a couple of them I want to point out. The first one: buy things that are use for their usefulness rather than their status. Uh, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Develop a habit of giving things away. Um, I guess I'll just read all of them. Um, refuse, refuse to be, this was an interesting one, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. Um, so, in other words, in other words, be, be real mindful of those that are trying to sell you something. Like, if there's one, the more you start practicing simplicity, the more you start recognizing how, how, um, Potentially, and I hope I don't offend anybody in here, potentially, like the enemy is all over the marketing industry. Like, anytime, anytime you see something being sold, ask yourself, what is it they're trying to sell me? Okay, not the, not the product. What is it they're trying to sell me in this product? A better life? Happier, happiness? Better looking? Like, I'll have more friends? Like, what is it they're trying to sell me with this product? And you'll be amazed. You'll be offended, actually, quite a bit, but you'll be amazed. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Develop a deeper appreciation for creation. The more you fall in love with God's creation, the less you, the less you want plastic things and handmade things. I think that's true. Look, at the healthy, look with a healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. Um, obey Jesus' instructions about plain and honest speech. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. And then last one, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Oh, those were pretty helpful. Um, but ultimately, I, I hope and pray that verse, this Matthew 6.33, will be kind of a verse that, that is your motivating verse for the way you live and how you live and how you buy things. Okay? Let me pray, and we'll be done. God, thank you for... Your gifts um, help us to not be impressed with the things that you give as much as we fall in love with you and are grateful for, for what you give and recognizing um, that you are the provider of every good gift and that, God, you call us to, um, to hold these gifts loosely and be ready at any moment to surrender them back to you, to give them to someone else, uh, whatever it is you call, God. So I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stick around. Have some more popcorn. Eat popcorn. Why not? Drown your sorrows. You got money? You got money for me? Okay. Uh, let me get my bag. Hang on. Oops. Let me turn this off first.